This podcast was recorded on July 18th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have another returning guest, Mr. Andrew Shu, portfolio manager within our Structured Products Group. All right, gentlemen, great to be here. Yeah, so we have a pleasure once again, Andrew, of having you. But this time, the pressure's on because we're recording on the video because we're posting it also on our YouTube channel. Pressure's definitely on. Yeah. So for those of you listening, you can also catch the video of this and see the three of us at action here at youtube.com backslash double line capital. Again, youtube.com backslash double line capital. On top of that, we've started to post on our Twitter feed at Sherman Show Pod. That's at Sherman Show Pod. If you want to keep in touch with us in between podcasts, we post some charts and random musings as we're thinking about the markets out there these days. But jumping into it, uh, enough of the advertisements there. Let's jump right into it, Andrew. So we've been talking a lot about the structured products business, and maybe it'd be helpful to our listeners to one define what structured products are, securitized assets. We use those kind of interchangeably around here. Define what they are and how you actually got in that part of the business to begin with. Sure. So I guess what they are, the way I would characterize structured products very simply is really just an asset, essentially a fixed income asset in this case, that's collateralized by a specific asset. And typically those assets generate cash flow and those cash flows ultimately pay off the liabilities associated with the structured portion. Okay. So structured products, I think, sometimes get a bad name because a lot of people think of them as bank product. They've been sold by a broker and a lot of them have esoteric payouts. So we use that phrase, but I think securitized product is probably a better way to describe it because you're talking about securitizing cash flows of these cash flow generating assets. I would actually say that's probably the more accurate way and the better descriptor for it anyways, just because there are a lot of assets out there and in the fixed income world, especially one of the largest investment grade portion of the market on the corporate side, it's by definition unsecured market. So here we're talking about something that's actually secured by asset pool. By true real assets that's right. typically, right? That's exactly right. How do these types of assets behave? I mean, they have a credit component in some instances, right, that you talked about. How do they behave relative to, let's say, traditional assets that people may know, such as like corporate credit? Well, I mean, if you think about structured credit or securitized products, the way I like to characterize it is really think of a corporate credit. When you're investing in corporate credit, essentially what you're looking at is a balance sheet. There's an asset side to that company, and they might sell computers or they might provide some type of service. And then there's the liability side, which is the debt that you're investing in. And then there's the equity side, which might be floating in the S&P 500 somewhere. Within the securitized side, all of that, the whole balance sheet is contained in one spot. You know what your assets are, you know what your liabilities are, and you know what your equity is. So depending on how those assets ultimately perform will determine how both the debt portion and the equity portion on the liability side perform. So if the assets do extremely well, 
you're going to get paid off on the debt and equity is going to do very well. Whereas if they don't perform very well, then you may start having some haircuts starting at the bottom, which is the equity, and then moving on this way up. I like that kind of approach of explaining it. It's just this debt and equity. It's just like a corporation. So could you think of each of these bonds or each of these securitized products you buy as its own individual corporation? That's the way I think of it. I'll be honest. When I first started this business, I wasn't even sure what it was. <laughs> and then I took some time and figured it out. And I started comparing it to some of the other assets I looked at in my past life. And ultimately, it looked like something I learned in college in Accounting 101. It's just assets equals liabilities plus equities. That's as simple as it is. So on that note, let's talk about where you first got into the business on the investment side. And so I think I've been working with you most of my career and I think vice versa here. And when you started, if my memory serves me at our former employer, you started on the agency mortgage market. Is that right? That's right. So I started in 02 on the agency side with uh, Jeffrey and the rest of the team back then. And again, to be fully honest, I wasn't exactly sure what structured products was, but I learned very quickly and really learned through a fire hose and had to be a quick thinker there. So let's talk about that. How do you explain what an agency mortgage-backed security is to people and, and how do you think about investors using them in portfolios? Agency mortgage-backed security is essentially a bond product that is securitized by home loans. The bigger concern is the prepayment risk. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the liability side, you asked the question, how do investors use this product? Well, what's very interesting, and I think this is really synonymous across all structured products, whether it's agency product versus credit product, is it has something to offer everyone. There's a shorter duration product. There may be a floating rate tranche, and then there are fixed rate tranches and extremely long duration type tranches. So all of the liabilities are sliced and diced to produce a profile So I think what you kind of bring up in that analysis or that way of kind of thinking about the agency mortgage market is that regardless of how people originate mortgages and traditionally the bulk of mortgages in this country are done on 30-year fixed rate basis. So you take out the loan, you pay it down for 30 years, and hopefully at the end you own the house. However, I guess you should as long as you pay it off. But however, you talked about slicing and dicing all this stuff. So when you think about it, you're taking one set pool of assets and it has an exact profile of this long 30-year mortgage and turn it into different cash flows. So what does that do as an investor? So as you're building portfolios, you're thinking about using these securities, how can you use these in the portfolio to really help express views on the marketplace? Sure. If you have different rate views, and I'm speaking more so on the agency side right now, if you have different rate views, you can express those views in different parts of the capital structure. I would say at the same time, and we can get into this later, but they also work as a very interesting hedge type product for other assets as well. So maybe give an example. So for example, let's just say we have a rising rate scenario. Typically in a rising rate scenario, the economy is doing quite well. So in that case, if you have a longer duration product, it's actually going to fall in price because it's going to move inversely with the interest rate movement. At the same time, what we've done, and we use this across our total return strategies, is we couple that with credit product. And credit product is a loss-adjusted product, meaning when you purchase that product, you make an assumption on what you think will default in that pool of assets. So in a rising rate environment, although your agency product will fall in price, the credit product very likely will see lower losses than you would expect in your base case expectations, so you'd see the price rise. So in that case, by coupling those two securities, they work as a very good hedge with each other. So you started off in the business on the agency mortgage desk and analyzing these securities, drinking through the fire hose, as you said. After you got your thirst satiated, what did you do after that? On the agency desk, we worked on a lot of different things. There were some more complex structures we worked on, and myself and another gentleman 
because this is in the early 2000s, there really weren't third-party systems developed to handle some of these more complex systems. So we spent a lot of time modeling these transactions up. And it was a bit archaic if you look at it now, but back then it was absolutely essential. So we developed this technical ability to really break down and re-engineer these structures. So I would say three and a half years out from starting, we started a credit mortgage team back at the old company, and they needed some expertise on the technical side and someone who knew mortgages. And naturally, because of my experience, both on the agency side, on the security side, and also on re-engineering transactions, I was a natural fit. So made that transition over to the credit side of the desk. So that's probably why I use the phrase structure productalized, because I think of it as a structure. There's the waterfall structures, there's the tranching, and all the esoteric things we talk about. But so how does one go from just worried about structure and thinking about the past through having this government guarantee to now introducing the side of having credit risk within it? It's interesting because when you break down fixed income, mainly there are two risks. There's interest rate risk, and then there's credit risk. So those are really the two levers you have to look at. Getting introduced to the credit side, I mean, you're now fully involved on the credit lever as well. You have to be concerned about interest rates, but you have this added dimension of credit to be concerned about. So for me, again, it was another learning process, a lot of work in terms of engineering the asset pools to determine what we thought losses would be and how they would ultimately impact those structures. And so was your first foray on the credit side in credit on the mortgage side? You said credit mortgages. Do you mean residential mortgages still? Are these commercial mortgages? What type of mortgages were these that you were looking at? The yeah, so risk? these are primarily residential mortgages, but I would say that we've managed and invested in, it has a very negative connotation now, but the three letters, CDOs, mm-hmm. we looked and invested in those as well. So within those pools, you had a mixture of different assets and typically they could be all agency or they could be multi-asset. A lot of the investments we looked at were multi-asset. So it required me to delve into commercial mortgage-backed securities, residential mortgage-backed securities, and agency mortgage-backed securities. Okay. So now you're going from just kind of the simple government guarantees it. I'm worried about interest rate risk. I'm worried about how the cash flows come through to pay down those structures and change the duration profiles to all of a sudden just in this credit component. And why do CDOs get a bad name? I mean, obviously there was some toxic things that happened there, but I have to jump on a tangent there because why is the C blank O? Because there's all kinds of different C blank O's. And it's not a bad word when I'm saying blank. I'm I'm just saying that there's a lot of letters that are going. It could be a CDO. It could be a CLO with their loans instead of debt under there. Why do you say they have such a negative connotation? Yeah, I think the CDO got a pretty bad rap because of what happened during the crisis. And there, clearly, there was a lot of securitization of different types of mortgage pools that were able to achieve ratings that probably they shouldn't have gotten. And without getting overly technical here, these CDOs, in the latter you bring up CLOs, I think very highly of CLOs. We talk about that later if you have interest. But the CDOs got a bad rap because they had certain mechanisms in there that if the underlying assets, which in this case could be residential mortgages, CMBS, so forth and so on, were downgraded to a certain point, or if the market value fell to a certain point, it would force liquidation of these pools. So you got to think about this is we're going into the crisis. There's a concern about all financial markets. The housing market in particular is really facing significant stress. And then we have these downgrades across the board on these assets. Deterioration and fundamentals, right? That's right. So that's your asset side. So the liability needs to widen out. But also then you have this technical side where essentially the structure is not allowed to hold the securities that's right. or requires more subordination or more enhancement to the structure given the rating, right? That's right. I think that's That's where the trouble is rooted because a lot of the investors in the CDO space, they looked at the ratings and I'm sure they did their homework, but they expected these to hold up well. They'd never really thought about this wide scale downgrade type risk. And those forced the liquidations out, which essentially 
cause them to lose even the AAA holders a significant amount of money. Yeah, I remember talking to investors in the mid 2000s and people saying, "Oh, look at this structure of uh, the securitized product CDO for instance and look at for a comparable rating, it offers a higher spread than let's say something in the traditional corporate credit market." Now, given at a face value, just rating for rating, it seemed at the surface without digging deep that they had better value, but ultimately maybe they didn't, but it was a trustworthiness in the ratings of the underlying assets. Not not the structure itself. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people were taken aback by that. And I think that caused a lot of issues. I mean, from an investor's perception, because they had the AAA rating and you had it spread better than a comparable AAA corporate, from a relative value standpoint, you thought that you were picking up something better. I think you really need to look under the hood. Yeah. So were you ever alarmed when working on these CDOs and saying, okay, you see all these assets, everything's predicated on this rating. Did you ever see any fragility in the structure or anything? Or was it really just at the end of the day, a misrating of the assets that underlie the structures? I mean, we looked at the structure and I would say there were times that we definitely were concerned. I mean, because some of these CDOs that we were looking at were subprime CDOs. So subprime being essentially the lower tier bars in the residential space. I don't think, and I'll be honest here, is like I probably never thought at that point in time we would see the downgrades that we did. So in terms of hitting any trigger that would force a liquidation or premature liquidation, I just didn't see that coming. Because essentially, in some cases, I mean, it's a, a misrating of an entire category of assets. Yeah. Well, I've always said that the CDO got a bad rap, not because of the structure itself. And again, the CDO structure came from the agency mortgage market, which has been around since yeah. the late 70s, early 80s, when the first kind of CMOs were created the cloud mortgage obligation. But really, at the end of the day, wasn't it the underlying borrowers that were really committing some form of misleading the investors, like committing fraud. And essentially, we could argue about the ratings, but at the end of the day, it was the behavior of really the American populace within the housing market, wouldn't you say? You can say it's the American populace, or you could say it was the lending institution. Okay. The American populace will say- Took advantage. Exactly. That they forced them into products that they weren't fully aware of. So it's still TBD, whose fault it really was, but I would really say that it's both entities' fault. So the lending institution lending needs to do a better job educating the borrower. The borrower needs to do their homework to understand what they're getting. And we got into. some of that post-crisis, right, with reform, truth in lending standards, simplification of, of repayment schemes. Whenever you take out a loan now, it tells you exactly how much interest you pay back, what your principal looks like, and what your aggregate payments are. So I think that because of that, we've had a better education. But at the end of the day, just like most credit markets, when we have these long tails of expansions, underwriting standards and lending standards tend to go down. They get softer. I would say in this market now, it's arguable if lending standards have softened. For sure, they have since just immediately after post-crisis. But the regulations they bring up, that's a really key point. A lot of those regulations weren't in place pre-crisis. Now these regulations should protect both Wall Street and it should protect the investors and also the consumers ultimately in the end. I think one of the key points here too is risk retention. Now they require issuers to retain the risk. So if things go bad, they're the first ones to take that hit. So the alignment of interest is there now. Right. Versus just saying, hey, I'm going to make a bunch of loans and sell them off to somebody unknowingly or unwittingly or take a bunch of good ones, put the bad ones in there to try to make it okay on average. That's right. I think one of the examples too, going back to the crisis area and the discussion that you're having between the assets versus the structure could be shown through the CLO market, the collateralized loan obligations. And perhaps, I mean, do you see any parallels there with what you saw in the CDO market 
and mortgages versus today's loan market and CLOs. Yeah. So going back to you know, my duties back then, I was very involved on the technical side, remodeling, re-engineering transactions, whether it's a CDO, whether it's a CMBS position, whether it's a CLO. So we just looked at all the mechanics there. The CDO has a very bad reputation. The CLO still exists today, and there are a lot of investors in the CLO market. They also performed to the last crisis, exactly. right? So they didn't get that black that's eye, right. that tarnishment that the exactly. others did. Exactly. And that's why they're still widely accepted today. There, the architecture is slightly different. They didn't have a trigger that would cause them to liquidate in mass based on like a rating migration type scenario. Well, also, they're below investment. Exactly. I was going right. to say, so they're, yeah, they're right starting design. at a lower level yeah, right. anyways, right? They're so, not all triple so, A yes. assets to begin with. So we have less of a distance to move. But at the same time, they didn't have this mechanism in place to cause them to do so. They did have mechanisms around market value. So if they fell below 70 or 75 market value, then you would have to essentially haircut certain tests that would cause the cash flows to shift a little bit. I learned some pretty interesting lessons during the financial crisis. And one of them is that liquidity is fleeting. You think you have liquidity and then one day you don't. Liquidity is like diversification. It's there when you don't need it. Yes. And when you really need it, it disappears. That's right. The other part of it is really being disciplined. So the CLO market, when that thing fell apart, and this is a very interesting lesson I learned, we were involved in some of the equity positions and equity positions fell dramatically during that time because the cash flow shifted all to the seniors. And we had calls with CLO managers, and some of these managers were reinvesting at discount security below that $70 threshold. And essentially, that was killing the test and causing the cash flows to be diverted to the seniors. Naturally, as an equity buyer, you're very upset. You're like, why are you doing this? This is hurting the test. These investors, they were disciplined. They saw value in those spots, discounted bank loan positions. Ultimately, when the recovery started happening, you saw these positions go from $5 to $130 type positions. So if you had the patience and you weren't so forced to liquidation. By, by diverting the cash flows, it protected the structure, delevers the structure. Yes. And when the recovery comes back, the equity position is just, it reaps multiples off of that, right? That's right. You're over collateralizing that transaction. So you had to have this long distance view of, I really had conviction here. I think that I did my homework and this asset warrants value. And it's a lot more value than what I can buy for in the market. And you go through the cycle. If you're not forced to liquidate due to some forced liquidation event, the recovery was substantial. Substantial. If I recall back in like the late stages of the cycle last time, you worked on one of the credit products, which was multi-sector in the CDO. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So what did you guys do there too? It wasn't just this resecuritization or the securitization of securitized assets, which sounds like a mouthful, but also bringing in traditional credit into those as well. Yeah. So there were corporates in there. There was a bank loan slice in there. There were agencies in there, and there were some structured credit in there as well. What makes it even more difficult is there was a swap in there because there was floating rate product and fixed rate product, so they had a swap in there in place. So that one was probably one of the most complex deals, and lucky for me, it was one of the first deals I worked on. So <laughs> once I got through that one, I've seen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so when you came to Double Line, too, when you joined, I mean, your founding partner, like the two of us, when we came over, what were you first working on here at Double Line when we were launching our first few strategies? When we started and just for, I mean, listeners to understand is we were focused on a specific area. We didn't have the luxury of kind of spreading our wings and focusing on everything that we've seen in the past. I would say that the concentration was really on mortgages. And for me specifically, it was really on the credit mortgage side. It was a huge opportunity back then. Why were we focused on mortgages for those that weren't around nine and a half years ago? Yeah, I mean, it was the sector that saw probably the largest magnitude of dislocation. And for us, we looked at all the opportunities. We saw that as the 
best opportunity at that point in time. So really, it was all hands on deck on non-agency mortgages, but also on the agency side as well. So evolution. So we get together. We're all cranking through kind of the mortgage stuff, launching total return strategy, pounding the table to investors saying, I mean, you don't realize how cheap this stuff is. I mean, this is one of these opportunities, that lies, especially in a bond market. You don't get a lot of great opportunities in the bond market to say, hey, we can get double-digit returns with really benign risk. And then prices grind tighter, markets starting to recover. Then what did you spend your days doing? Did you branch out from there? I know the story, but yeah. for our listeners here, can you tell us sure. about how you started to branch out and look at newer things? Yeah, so I've always been an inquisitive person, I would say. And I'm interested in everything I do, and I try to really dig down with a fine-tooth comb and try to figure out what's really driving the mechanics of this or what's driving the economics of something. And I started looking at other areas as well. As the non-agency mortgage market became more efficient, I should say, I started looking at other areas, including asset-backed securitizations. And within asset-backed securitizations, investors should know that it essentially encompasses a very, very large spectrum of opportunities. It could be something, I guess, as mundane as auto finance, or it could be something as esoteric as renewable energy. So I found that very fascinating. I spent a lot of time there. There was some dislocation at that time. I think the first time I really, in earnest, spent a lot of time in that space on something was during 2013. We had the administration in Washington at that point in time really concerned about student loans. Student loan market, as a result, started seeing a lot of volatility because there was concerns about loan modifications, and maybe even outright loan forgiveness. I don't think loan forgiveness is going to happen. I just think this is too big of a hit to the balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet. But we started looking at different areas of student loans. And the treasury balance sheet. Oh, sorry, treasury balance sheet. And we saw a great opportunity in that space. So as I've known you throughout your career, what I've known about you too is to be someone who's not restricted by a box. That, As you said, you've been intellectually curious understand things. And I think that's really evident in you launching one of our strategies here as the lead manager on with the infrastructure side. And so can you tell us how you sort of think about something like that and you identify these opportunities? Because it's important. It's something we use extensively. It's not just in your own strategy. We've been investing in infrastructure debt since you brought it to us in our multi-sector fixed income strategies as well. So tell us, how does someone get into that to be on a pioneer in kind of a newer area? Or I mean, infrastructure has been around for a while, but Again, a lot of people don't think about it as there being infrastructure debt. They think about investing in the equity side of it. So how did you come across that and start thinking about it and say, hey, there is really this significant opportunity here? It's interesting. It was a confluence of a number of things. I mean, on the ABS side, we started seeing securitizations in the space. And it was ranging from shipping-type assets to other aviation-type assets, and then more recently, renewable energy. And digging into this deeper, I found it very interesting. And this is a little bit wacky, but I decided to take this online course. There's a lot of colleges publish their curriculums online. And I just told myself one day, I was like, I'm going to take a class. I don't care what it is. And it happened to be next generation infrastructure. So you just went looking for, I need to take a class. I don't have enough work to do. I don't have enough in my personal life. I want to go out and take a course. And this is the one you chose? Or was there some curiosity about it? Like what made you do that? No, there was certainly curiosity about it. But I wanted basically perspective. I spent so much time structuring transactions, looking at agency mortgage transactions, looking at non-agency mortgage transactions. And I was like, look, there's this whole world out there. I have this I don't want to say tunnel vision, but I felt like, do I have this tunnel vision? I'm only looking at this sector. Like, I need to look at something different to get perspective to see if I'm really missing the big picture. So I, I decided to take a class. I mean, could have been on music, but it turned out to be on infrastructure. And it happened to coincide exactly with some of the investments that we were looking at. So getting through this class, it was interesting. You know, I had to write term papers again. I hadn't written term papers in so long. 
But after I got through that class, I realized the magnitude of financing needed in the infrastructure space. So can we ask what your grade was in the course? So it was just a pass-fail. And you I got, passed? I passed. Okay, I good. passed. It was eye-opening because I literally learned about this immense sector that I otherwise probably wouldn't have even really thought about. Right. So as you pull this together, you're seeing ABS deals getting done out there. What makes you really start to say, okay, look, Double Line needs to get invested in this sector of the market? Because I started looking at some of these assets. And these assets, because of the monopolistic nature of some of these infrastructure assets, they're really utilized regardless of what's going on with the business cycle. So they provide some type of resiliency. And we talked about the hedge earlier with agencies and non-agencies. I saw this as a pretty good hedge versus some of our other credit products. At the same time, I saw it as a new type asset, so you could pick up this excess spread. So at that point in time, earnestly, we went after it, started modeling different transactions up. And what's interesting is I started talking to a lot of the project finance desks on Wall Street, and they were actually linking up with the structured desks in order to finance some of these assets. Because prior to the financial crisis, the banks really retained most of the debt risk. But post-financial crisis, we talk about regulation changes. A lot of the banks were limited in how much capacity they could hold. So they were looking to syndicate out. And they saw the structured product market as a viable option because, again, going back to what we first said, just like agencies offer something for everyone. If you could tranche up this debt, not everyone wants 30, 50-year debt, but if you can tranche it up and have different cash flow timelines, then you have a very broad investor base. So it's just really, it's like the perfect storm. Right. So in the 17 years I've known you, you've done agency MBS, you've worked in non-agency RMBS, you've worked in some capacity in CMBS, you've worked on CLO transactions, you've worked in ABS. Is there any part of the structured products or the securitized market you haven't really looked at? Or at least invested in? How about that? I mean, I would say the one part I never pull the trade on is in the CMBS market. But indirectly through our CDO positions, we were looking at those and valuing those. But that would be the only portion. But I do think there are many other sectors to come. I mean, you see the growth in this space. There will be more that I've never touched. And I think that's why it's so interesting to be in this space. Yeah. So what's the commonality there? I mean, do you think it's more just being able to analyze and your familiarity with the structuring side? Yeah. Is it the credit side? I would actually take it all the way back to when I first started the business. When I first started the business, an idea of what duration was. I probably didn't really have an idea of what convexity was. And I think those are really the two fundamentals I keep to. Now people are going to press fast forward for a minute when they hear convexity. But OK, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people struggle with convexity. Yeah, right? so it's, it's tough. Convexity, for our listeners who, the way I think about it, is just upside versus downside. Right. If you have a security that goes up five points and it could go down two points in a worst case scenario, you have positive convexity. So more upside than downside. That's right. That's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. But I took those two elements and I apply it to everything. And I think that's interesting because I was fortunate enough to start on the agency side. I don't think if I didn't, I would really hold those two concepts as near and dear to my heart as I did. And it's interesting is now when I talk about more esoteric type investments, I always bring other people into our deal meetings to talk about it. And there's no way an agency person is going to connect with me on battery technology and solar. you got to spend time on it. But if we start talking about convexity, that's a common language. You see, we all perked up a bit. Sam sat up in his chair a little bit. Convexity, yeah, it makes sense. But the way I think about it, too, is return per unit of risk. And so we're talking about the asymmetry of things. If it has asymmetry of the upside, that's positive convexity. But the thing that's dangerous in this business is the negative convexity, where you think you're just guaranteeing this nice, steady return stream, and all of a sudden, it disappears. That's right. So I think, as Sam asked, too, about the commonality, there's commonality across all these things that they're structured. They have a deal flow. They have waterfall structures of cash flows. 
But how do they behave? Do they all behave the same? Is there some value add to combining ABS with CMBS, with non-agency RMBS, with CLO and the likes? Yes. I mean, I think they're all structures. And actually, if you look at the assets, all those assets are unique in their own. CMBS, commercial real estate. If we have a downturn in commercial real estate, you probably don't want all of your investment dollars tied up in commercial real estate. And there might be other areas that actually do quite well in those instances. So to your point, Jeff, the commonality is certainly the way these things are structured. I feel like you can drop any structured product in front of me, and I think I'll understand it in a very short order. The underlying assets have very specific nuances that because of those nuances, I think diversification is very, very important. Right. And that's why I think about the ABS market. You were talking about student loans or autos, renewables, wind, solar, hydro. Yeah. You have airports. You have all these things. I mean, don't they behave it differently at different points in the cycle? They do. So don't you inherently get some natural diversification just even within the ABS sector? You do. Actually, we think it's very interesting, the ABS sector, how broad it is and how it continues to grow. I'll just give an example. I mean, things were going pretty well post the crisis, and we had a couple of bumps here and there. But when the market was really on fire, there was a default in the shipping space. There was a company called Hanjin that defaulted. And that was one of the largest shippers in the world. The shipping industry has never seen this. So we saw maritime assets in the ABS space spreads widen out like crazy. And at that point in time, it was a great diversifier. We remodeled the deals and we looked at them. We're like, I don't think these things are going to fall at the senior level. And we ended up picking up some very, very cheap assets. I do remember I went to Panama this year for the first time and actually going to the Panama Canal and looking at it, realizing finally why they're called Panamax shipping freights. Maybe you could tell our listeners that, because I thought that was interesting. The shipping industry's changed a lot. There's a lot about efficiency. And in this case, efficiency means size. So these Panamax boats essentially are massive, and they can fit through the Panama Canal with maybe a couple inches to spare <laughs> right, on either right. side. It's the maximum size of a boat yeah, that exactly. the Panama Canal, yeah, right? So yeah. it barely can fit, and it's amazing to see. I've actually been to the canal myself and looked at that. It's exciting to see that. And a lot of us take it for granted. A lot of the things that we have, maybe even this cup, come from another country, and it's being shipped across using that type of shipping. Yeah. I did find that pretty amazing just to sit there and watch the process too. I did not expense that trip as a due diligence okay, for good. you, but I did send you a note, I recall, saying, hey, is there anything you need me to look at these ships that yeah, I'm down yeah, yeah. here? So let's bring it all back together. So thinking about the structured product space too, how do you think about relative value? You have all these different assets sitting there. So you're talking about a shipping deal versus someone's house, let's say in Kansas, versus a premier property, flagship property of a commercial building in Miami. How do you bring all these things together and think about how they're going to behave? Yeah, I think that's the really the strong point, double line. It's really the communication. It really started from the beginning. We have formalized processes where we meet once a week on the structured product side, talk about relative value. But we also have an informal process where myself, I could walk over and talk to anyone on the CMBS desk or the agency desk and vice versa. They can come to me anytime. And this isn't just work at the portfolio management level. The analysts can do this as well. So really this promotion of free communication has been key. And I think that during these meetings, when we discuss some of these opportunities and like, I'll be honest, sometimes it gets heated because people have a very strong opinion about what they're looking at. But when you put it in context of everything at the same time, we can determine relative value. And I would say that from the alignment of interest 
standpoint, we're not compensated based on how many dollars I put to work. What we're compensated on is how we perform for our investors. So really, there's a strong alignment of interest between all parties. And so, yeah, I've seen your team over there talking to our credit analysts and talking about the energy space, for instance, sure. and making sure that we're getting these views. One other thing is, too, I always like to talk to you on a macro level. Obviously, we work a lot more on macro than kind of on the micro that you do. How do you incorporate that thinking to this? Because macroeconomic and variable for shipping, I would think trade today. The trade war is probably the most prescient thing there, right? And some principal risk there. But how do you incorporate macro into your thinking of trying to help model these cash flows and structure? So we have a macro team and you two gentlemen are very much involved. Again, it's the communication side. Anytime we go into a transaction, we have resources at our disposal. You mentioned the credit side. We can tap an energy analyst to help look at an energy transaction for us. At the same time, on the macro side, I remember talking to Ryan Kimmel over here about trade. And He's been a Sherman Show guest. Yep. Okay, yep. that's great. Yeah, it's so easy to just turn around and talk about this types of thesis in order to reflect it in our scenario analysis. And I think that's massively helpful. Yeah. So you just mentioned scenario analysis. And again, we don't believe in a lot of black boxes and things. How do you think about scenario analysis when trying to analyze this? What kind of scenarios do you think and how do you stress these assets? I take it you just don't buy them off of credit rating. No, we don't. No, we don't. If you talk to the rest of my team, I'm probably the most guilty of running too many scenarios. I mean, we have another team member of mine who she always makes fun of me for how many scenarios I go through. And the reason being is we always talk about it. We could run a million scenarios. I guarantee you not one of those is going to be exactly accurate in how this plays out. But what we want to see is what is the potential outcome? How bad can this get? How well can this structure hold up versus these different scenarios? And I think that's really the key here. I mean, we talk about structured products. The structure is very, very important. You could have some bad assets or a pool of bad assets with a very, very strong structure And certain parts of the structure will do phenomenally. And what we're trying to do is tease out and find out where that is. So I would call it breaking the structure. Breaking the structure, finding the strong spots in that space. And for us, that's extremely important. And that's why we're doing it. Yeah. Okay, good. So as the market evolves, you've obviously evolved the last 17 years that I've known you. What do you think the kind of opportunity set? You talked about different assets that may lend themselves to securitization. What do you think could be out there? Again, no one has the crystal ball, but what are you seeing? Or or are there some nascent transactions or different types of things that are trying to be tested in the market? And what do you think the opportunity set will look like in the future? Sure. I believe in cycles, and I think everything goes in cycles. We're coming out of a cycle where non-agencies have done extremely well, and they're priced more efficiently now. I do see a market where you have... RPL and NPL, re-performing and non-performing loans, hitting the market in securitized form. So that's kind of an evolution. What does that mean to our listeners, re-performing? Re-performing. So loans that were previously in some form of delinquency who are now current on their payments again over a prolonged period of time. And what would the underlying borrower be in this case? So we're talking about loans. Residential mortgage-backed loans. Yeah, so I should have made that clear. So that market is starting to develop, as well as a what we call the non-QM, non-qualified mortgage. So now the mortgage market is extremely strict in terms of who they will lend to because they want to avoid a crisis like 08. But there are a lot of borrowers out there who aren't the typical 750 FICO ADLTV type borrower. So the non-QM side will look at each individual borrower and provide some flex in one of these attributes and provide them a And loan. so the flex means increased cost to the borrower, which means increased yield to an ultimate investor, right? That's right. So our non-agency desk calls it the new Alt-A security. And I think that's absolutely accurate because these aren't prime borrowers, but there's nothing wrong with Alt-A. We've owned a lot of Alt-A. But they're not subprime. But they're not subprime. There's a big gap between that's right. prime and subprime. Right. There's no like middle prime or yeah. I don't know what yeah. you call I guess that's why we call it Alt-A. It also comes back to the Alt-A products 
back in the pre-crisis time being abused by, again, the he said, she said kind of thing, yes. either the lenders or the borrowers. That's right. So. so as that market evolves, I think there's going to be a resurgence in that space. It may take some time, but we're seeing that in the works. On the CMBS side, there's constant development there. What's interesting, that team has been extremely innovative in terms of what they're doing. So they've teamed up and they've worked with originators on essentially securitizing their own types of products. They're getting involved down in cap structure, which is very interesting. And then on the ABS side, which is a side I spent a lot of time, Issuance volume is massive, and what's different between 08 and now is pre-crisis, all of the issuance volume in ABS was really on consumer product, auto students and credit cards. Today, it's very different. We talked about a lot of the hard assets coming into play, newer technologies, this whole 5G network that's being rolled out across the United States so our cell phones work nonstop. Yeah, I saw that too. I saw someone talking about speeds of the Verizon Home 5G. It was only 300 megabits. It didn't sound that impressive. But when you think about it from a cell phone perspective, yes. it's a massive upgrade. It's a massive right? upgrade. And in order for a lot of technology to occur, such as the autonomous vehicle, you need 5G. So this stuff is it's being... the sig- throughput of data, right? That's right. I mean, in low latency. I, I don't want to get too technical again, but you can't have... I mean, if you're driving a car on autopilot, you don't want it to have to think for two seconds before it stops. You want it to stop immediately. So you need that 5G. So all of this... You don't want a blind spot either in your data, no, you right? you don't. <laughs> yeah. So all of this development is going to necessitate financing, and we're starting to see some of it come through, and it's, it's extremely exciting. Yeah. Two more things on that, and I'll let Sam kind of wrap it up after that, is we talked about the origination securitization. I hear this always as disintermediation of the finance system of the bank. It gets a bad rap when you hear disintermediation, or people refer to it as shadow banking and things. So... How do you think about that idea? Isn't it just the onus of underwriting comes deeper now to an investor versus a bank? But does that help you as an investor? Do you have a better line of defense there? Or are you hindered by that? Are you hindered by the bank being there in the first place? How do you think about that disintermediation transaction? The banking institution serves a very specific function here. And I don't think as asset managers or hedge funds or private equity companies, you can fill that role easily. So I don't think it's in the best interest of the economy to have banks essentially disappear or mitigated in terms of the exposure and financing, there are opportunities that arise because they are no longer able to hold on certain risks. So this whole concept of discerned intermediation, I mean, it provides opportunities for investors such as ourselves. But I think the bigger opportunity is partnering with a lot of these banking institutions. They can't hold the risk anymore, but you know they have the expertise, the legal team, so forth and so on, to underwrite some of these transactions in a They've very been there for so long. Yeah, efficient manner and economical manner, right? So us partnering with them early on, I think that's really where you can get a lot of opportunities. All right. So on that, I want to lead to the thing that's been a hot button here at Double Line and a lot of places is peer-to-peer lending. How do you think about that? We've seen securitizations take place in that space. How do you think about that space? And for people who have been thinking about the investment, what's your take on it? How do you analyze it? And further, do you think that this has another place in the economy? Certainly has served a role because a lot of loans are occurring now. Now, I'll say that on the student loan side, I wouldn't say it's peer-to-peer, but it's definitely a uh, fintech way of lending to people. I think it's going to stay. I think currently in this market, There may be some issues, though. I think there are borrowers who probably shouldn't be getting loans. I think some of the pitfalls that we saw with the mortgage crisis in 08 may be occurring at the consumer level because at the consumer side, there's not a lot of document checking before you're taking a loan. And if somebody's taking a $20,000, dollars $50,000 loan, once they get that loan, the utility 
of the loan is no longer there because you're not going to draw on the loan again. You have the $50,000. And if you go and- There's no asset behind it. It's unsecured, that's right. right? If you spend it on something frivolous, I mean, you go to Las Vegas and you lose it, you have nothing to go back on. So I would say I'm concerned about that market. We are investors in that market. And I think this goes back to that place where if the structure is sufficiently robust, we will get involved. I think the senior part of the capital structure is very interesting. I fear- that the bottom part of the capital structure may see some- Has some negative convexity, to use your phrase. Massive negative convexity, yeah. So I think that that's pretty interesting too because it's not shying away from it. There's a part that you don't like, but that's the beauty of the capital structures. It allows you to, if one part's really very unattractive, typically another part makes it very attractive, right? That's right. Yeah. So is there anything you want to leave us with, anything you're thinking about today on the structured side that investors should think about? Because there's no ETF here out there in this- peer-to-peer lending. There's not really a big ETF like an ABS. So how can investors kind of get exposure to these sectors of the market? And, and how does it fit in the portfolio just to bring it back full circle? Yeah. So to answer your first question, what should investors think about this market? I think it's a very interesting market where in this time where investors are concerned about a downturn in the market, this is a market where you actually have security in an asset. So you have something to fall back on if things don't work out. I would say from a structural standpoint, that provides you protection as well. And investors such as ourselves spend a considerable amount of time analyzing this to determine where is the best fit? Where is the investor getting the best return for the risk that they're taking? And in terms of where it fits in this portfolio, if we're talking about the turn strategy, I would say that the barbell nature of it is extremely interesting because we don't know if rates are going to rise tomorrow or fall tomorrow. And alternatively, you don't know when that credit downturn is going to happen. But the total return strategy is, is structured in such a way that where you're naturally hedged. Right. I like to call it risk integration because usually with hedging, it costs you something. And in this case, you actually pick up yield on both sides. That's right. And putting it back together, you lower overall risk. Hopefully that rates markets and credit markets don't tank simultaneously. But typically, you do get some benefit of diversification in there. And so I always like to think it's, it's integrating the risk to try to create a better, smoother profile and hopefully create that positively convex payoff that we're all looking for there. That's absolutely right. Okay. Well, Sam, we've got Andrew here. He's got to get back to the desk. So do we. So before we do that, why don't you introduce him to your favorite part of the show? And that part of the show, Mr. Sue, is Sherman Says. And you're a veteran here, but I'll go ahead and repeat the rules just to refresh your memory. I will utter a term and from which you'll give me a response, a top of mind response, and you can keep it to one word. You can put it into a paragraph if you want. I'm going to alternate between the two, starting with Mr. Sherman with dollar intervention. Manipulators. U.S. trade policy. Worsening. U.S. retail sales. Volatile. U.S. housing market. Flat. Strait of Hormuz. Violent. South China Sea. Islands. Inflation targeting. Good luck. Debt forgiveness. I hope not. Burger King tacos. Lunch. Next online class. Maybe something on astronomy. That's interesting. So I'm going to take a side note real there. That's really cool because our first Sherman Show guest we had was Professor Schiller. Oh, wow. And Professor Schiller is a brilliant guy. He just came off of winning his Nobel Prize like a year before or so. And we're talking about pricing theories. We're talking about econometrics. And he's saying, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? He goes, 
I think about the stars. It's like, I like to really go outside. And so we're expecting some fancy financial thing. And all of a sudden he's like, I'm just amazed by going out there and staring at the stars and thinking about it. And it's, it's just this great perspective too. So I think the space exploration and things, and maybe people get a little more excited with this supposed gold asteroid belt out there that's going to go out there and get trillions of dollars worth of gold. But I really hope we bring back some more space exploration and things. And so I like to see that we're doing more of that. So it's something that's been around since the beginning of humankind. It is. It's fascinating. Yeah. So thanks, Andrew. Sure. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. Appreciate it. And this is Andrew Shu, Portfolio Manager within the Structure Products area. You've probably seen him around here at Double Line. Thanks for joining us today. For the rest of you, tune in for the next episode of The Sherman Show coming soon. As I mentioned at the top, you can see us on Twitter at Sherman Show Pod. That's at Sherman Show Pod, all one word. You can send us an email, Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. That's all one word again. And also you can catch our YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com backslash Double Line Capital. Again, Andrew Shu, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Chance. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double-Line Capital.